This evening I'd like to speak about the wanting mind, being with it and letting go. When we come into a retreat situation like this, one of the things that perhaps stands out for us very clearly as we begin in our practices, that in fact it's a rather challenging situation. It's actually very demanding. We can experience it as being one of the hardest things we have ever engaged in in our lives, perhaps. And it's rather interesting when we find ourselves here because probably most of us didn't come here with a feeling that we really needed more difficulties in our lives or that we really needed to make our life more painful in some way. And so arising here, we might find ourselves reflecting, well, why am I engaging in this practice? Why uh, am I being encouraged and suggested to, to be here in a way that can be so difficult at times? These teachings and practices derive very specifically and directly from the teachings of the Buddha, who lived two and a half thousand years ago. And he was known, amongst many things, for one very clear statement about his teachings. He said rather frequently, and often quoted as saying, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. Now, as a friend of mine in America once commented, that's interesting, that sounds like two things, suffering and the end of suffering. And um, he reflected in this, that perhaps the Buddha had started off by teaching one thing and one thing only, suffering but found that it wasn't a very popular theme. And what actually makes it interesting to us is not that we're being told about the truth of suffering, but that we're equally being invited to understand the end of suffering. Spiritual teachings, dharma teachings and practices such as these which we are engaged in are concerned with very much recognizing the truth of our situation, the actuality of what is going on for us in our lives and in our hearts, acknowledging honestly where there is suffering, a sense of unsatisfactoriness, a sense of being separate from our life or ourselves, and equally recognizing and understanding the possibility of our release, our emancipation from that suffering, that unsatisfactoriness in life. And if we're interested in this, if this is something that really concerns us, then we need to really give some care and attention to the, the movement in our mind that we could perhaps describe as wanting, as craving, or as desire. It's an incredibly powerful force in our mind, and we can see what a powerful force it is in our world, in our society, and the effects it has in so many different ways on this world. And in this it has both a positive and an aspect and a negative aspect to it, where there's both the wanting for something to be in a certain way or to continue, to get a particular, and it's equally the wanting something else to go away or to not be present, to disappear. And these, these movements that we see in the form of wanting or not wanting, desire and craving or aversion and fear, have incredible impact in our society, in our culture we see the, the effect of materialism, of the in unquenchable wanting for more, and the message that we're given that we must keep seeking for more, more 
of this, more of that. We see the effect on our environment of the human addiction to having more, to getting more. And we equally experience the personal consequences, the pain and the poverty that is born of feeling that we never have enough, or that we can never allow ourselves to be where we are, because there's always something there that we don't like, or something that we wish to be there which is absent. It's a, it's a movement in a, in a force in our minds that is incredibly pervasive, that reveals itself in so many ways. And it seems can reach out and touch any aspect and any place in our lives. And the, the way it arises is it's kind of amazing to just stop and observe how easily it comes, how predominant it can be for us. There's a lovely story that I heard from a friend in America who was attending a conference with the Dalai Lama in New York. And he related the story which His Holiness told at the conference. And I don't know if any of you have had the privilege of meeting the Dalai Lama or at least know of him. Certainly a very lovely being and also known for having a, uh, a very innocent and childlike fascination with all forms of electric and electronic equipment and gadgetry, machinery. And the Dalai Lama told this story that um, he was staying at a hotel a few blocks away from the conference center. And every day in the morning he would drive, or he would be driven in fact by taxi, to the conference center. And as he drove it just so happened that the route the taxi took was past all these shops. And it just seemed to be the main area in town in New York for selling electrical goods, electronic equipment. And he described how every morning he'd be looking out the window and seeing all of these things in the windows, all these amazing appliances and equipment. And he said, every day my eyes grew wider and wider as we drove past it in the morning and back in the evening. And he said, you know, at the end of a week, I found myself desperately wanting all these things. And I didn't even know what they were. And it's, I think, a rather lovely illustration of the way our minds tend to work. We can spend so much time wanting for something and yet not actually knowing what it is that we want, thinking that somehow we're missing or lacking something, when in fact that may not be the truth. We live surrounded in a culture that is devoted to the pursuit of pleasure of what we want, to the avoidance of that which is uncomfortable, that which we do not want. And we get this message of consumerism coming to us from our friends, our family, our workplaces, through the media, through all sorts of different forms. We get this message that we must accumulate, that we must gather to us experiences, possessions, situations, that will somehow in that process make us happy. But if we look at our lives, if we see the truth of what's actually been going on for us, perhaps we've come to realize that in fact there is no satisfaction to be found in simply accumulating possessions or experiences, that there's no real end of that process. It goes on and on. And we may turn to our inner life we may see, oh, this materialism, this, this process that's being encouraged upon me of accumulating and attaining different things doesn't really seem to be satisfying. And so we turn our attention to our inner life. 
we engage in what we could call spiritual practice. We may become on retreat, such as this. And yet, it's interesting to notice that quite easily the same thing can start to happen. We start to look within, we start to look into our heart and mind. We become aware of what's going on in there, as we have been doing over this day. And sometimes when we become aware of that, we start looking at it and we think, oh, I don't like that. I think I have to get rid of that. That's no good. That's obviously not very spiritual. And I need a bit more of this. I could, I could do with a bit less of that anger and that guilt and that laziness and tiredness. And I, I need a bit more sort of patience and I could do with some more kindness and gentleness. And there might be a, a wisdom and an accuracy in that perception. But often the way we go about it is that we start to start to put pressure on ourselves. We start to make demands of our inner life. And in a way we get caught in a, in a, in a kind of spiritual materialism where we're relating to our inner life in just the same way as we related to the world and found that it didn't help. Where we start to look in terms of getting and getting rid of, born of a wanting and a grasping and a desiring for one thing, and out of a fear or a condemnation or a judgment of something else. And when we do that, what we find is that we can easily spend our life running away from our experience, running after something which is not our experience. And in running after, in running away from experience, we never ever come to rest. We never actually come to an end of that process. We might ask ourselves, how much time have we spent already in our lives doing this? How much time have we spent in our meditations just here today doing this? trying to get away from that which we did not like or thought should not be, trying to get to some other place or experience which we felt was right or better in some way. The Buddha once said, Fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. This is a very important statement. If we're interested in happiness, if we're interested in freedom, then we must be interested in understanding this life that we find ourselves in, rather than blindly pursuing the habits and the patterns of our mind and our culture. And to understand that there is wisdom born of even the intention to seek understanding. It doesn't mean one has to have understood it all in order to be wise. The wise are those who seek understanding. And that very interest to seek it is an expression of wisdom and is the place in which our life actually turns from being essentially a materialistic expression to one which is essentially spiritual. When we we engage ourselves towards understanding rather than simply the getting or the avoiding of experience. So as we look at our experience, if we start to reflect on it, we can certainly begin to see that there's some very fundamental characteristics of everything that goes on for us. And the first thing that perhaps stands out to us if we look at our lives is that there isn't really any ultimate satisfaction to be gained from any particular experience that we've had. Because if we'd got it, by now, if we'd had some experience that gave us ultimate satisfaction, well, we'd be happy with that, wouldn't we? 
we wouldn't be looking for anything more or anything different. And yet that's often not what we find. If we look at our experience, we see that it's changing. What goes on in the world around us is changing all the time. It's not reliable. It's, it's something that we can't actually control. And whether it be we're looking at the, the people around us and you know how many people are there that act just the way we would like them to be. You know, we're lucky if we find one that we can get on with most of the time. But for the rest of the world, how many, how many challenges, how many difficulties have we had because someone has done something or do not done something that wasn't the way we wanted it to be? Just things like uh, jobs, relationships, property that we might own, the weather. If we look at it, we see that it's always changing from one thing into another. We might get a job and we feel great, security, and yet there is no security. And these days it's more obvious than ever that even when we've got something, such as a job, it may easily be taken away from us. We look at the weather and it's been remarkably um, unchanging here for Devon weather to um, have an, even a, a few days of unbroken sunshine is rather miraculous and uh, Sort of it's usually that the weather's a really good example of change, but uh, I mean, I can't say I'm disappointed in this case that it's um, not really supporting the cause of what I'm talking about. But um, at the same time, I think you probably know what I mean when the weather can be such a, a constant reminder to us of that fact of change. And again, we might start to see that out in the world, so many things change, there are so many conditions that come together to create a particular situation easily change and fall apart and something new arises. All the changes of our life, of our circumstances, as we just reflect back on them, we can see how many different worlds we've inhabited. And yet it's not just confined to the outer world. We can sometimes start to accept perhaps, okay, it's out of control, there's all these other people doing their thing and you know, there's all this stuff that goes on out there. But what's even perhaps harder to accept and a little bit more challenging in some ways is when we look inside, when we look at our inner life, that actually what goes on in our mind and our body is equally not in our control. We might just take the very health of our body and how much we long for our bodies to be healthy. But in fact, as we go through the years, we start to realize something starts to tap on our shoulder when we become ill, when we are injured, and as the years add to the years and the decades, we realize health is something we can't take for granted. That our bodies are changing. That they're no longer, they don't sort of recover as quickly as they used to from illness, from injury. That we bruise more easily. Or that we don't have the energy that we once had when we were younger. I mean, it's said that from the age of 21, once we've pretty much done the growing we're going to do, the body just starts slowly running down. And you know, in the 20s one can manage to no avoid noticing that. In the 30s one starts to hear a whisper of it and you know, as the, the decades roll on, it becomes very clear. Body is not in our control. We can't make some continuity of health a place that we rest our happiness in because there's no guarantee of it. And even closer to us is our mind. We so much feel that this mind is who we are. And yet, you know, come to a meditation retreat and we're given the, you know, relatively simple instruction. Just observe your breathing. You know, we think, well, 
Yeah, I understand that. It's not too complicated. It doesn't sound like it should be beyond me. But what happens? Is it that we say to our mind, okay, observe that breath. Just stay with the breathing and that's what happens? No. The mind goes almost anywhere but. Sometimes it seems to almost take pleasure in the number of different places it can go that are not the breath, that are not the place that we actually intended to be present. And perhaps that starts to send us a little message. We start to realize that in fact our mind is not in control of itself. We are not in control of our mind. And and yet what we find ourselves doing when we start to see this is we often respond by trying to somehow control it, thinking that through an exercise of willpower or through maybe just being with it, then I'll be able to control it because that sounds like the meditative way or whatever. There's often the sense that somehow I should be able to get this into a condition where it's comfortable, where it's pleasant, where it's flattering to me because it's filled with all these wonderful thoughts and feelings that I think would be just lovely to have. And we so want this. But, you know, if it was going to happen, wouldn't it have happened by now? There's a story that's told about Mullah Nasruddin. Mullah Nasruddin is a, uh, a Sufi teaching figure from the, uh, the Middle East. And uh, he's known as both a wise man and a fool, although one suspects his foolishness is simply to wake us up to our own. And one morning, Nasruddin was found by some of his friends at the village market, and he was sitting there with a large pile of red chilies. He was picking up the chilies one at a time, putting them in his mouth and eating them. And as he was chewing on the chilies, his face was flushed bright red, his eyes were running, his nose was streaming, his body was shaking. He was obviously in quite a lot of discomfort. And his friend said, Mullah, Mullah, what are you doing? And Nazarudin replied, I'm eating these chilies. Picks up another one and eats it and his, you see his whole body just shudders with the, the burning heat of the chili. And they say, Nazarudin, we can see you're eating chilies. Why? Why are you eating those chilies? And he replied, I'm hoping to find a sweet one. <laughs> and again, maybe that's a little bit like ourselves where we keep thinking that the next one, the next moment, the next experience, the next meditation, the next retreat, maybe the next lifetime, is somehow going to be a better one, is somehow going to be a sweeter one, is somehow going to offer us something that this experience at this moment does not. But how many pleasant experiences have we already had in our lives? Where are they? Can we carry them with us? No. At the most, it's a memory. Any experience is just so ephemeral. There's nothing lasting. There's nothing graspable in it. And so, we might ask ourselves, do I really want to continue to spend so much of the energy of my life pursuing, trying to get experiences to make them the way I want them to be? whether it be outer experiences in the world with other people and things, or inner experiences, the state of our mind and our body. There's a really profound and powerful shift that happens for us 
when we begin to recognize that the sense of suffering or unsatisfactoriness that we experience in life is not actually due to the experience of the difficult or the absence of what we wish for. It's actually due to being lost in that movement of wanting, of desire, or lost in that aversion or fear. And when we're sitting, perhaps we've noticed at times that some pain arises in our body. So just notice when that occurs, what the pain feels like, and then notice also, is there resistance? Is there something in there that's saying, no, I can't be with this, I don't want to be with this, why do I have to experience this? And ask yourself, where's the real suffering here? Is it in that experience that is painful? Or is it in that pushing away, that fighting with, that cutting off from the experience that's born of aversion, of not wanting to be there? And it might equally be of sadness or of anger that we experience the feeling, no, I can't allow this to be here. It's not okay. And yet, that very pushing away, that very pushing away of our experience is what creates the pain, the deepest pain of <coughs> suffering and of separation. And equally, when we want something, when there's a sense of something missing that we need to get, that we want to keep, it's not the absence of that which is really causing our pain. It's the, the actual pain of the, the wanting. If you stop and feel what it's like, it's like it's burning, it's on fire. The movement of wanting is something that burns our very being when it's being expressed in that way, that contracted, identified way. And what we see is that in seeking after what we want or trying to avoid what we don't want, if we're successful, there's a momentary relief. There's a moment where, ha, ah, it's great, we've got the thing we wanted. Finally our mind is quiet for just two moments. And the wanting for it to be quiet releases. And we think this is great. Because the wanting is gone. Because the pressure is gone. <coughs> and then, in a moment or two, we see the wanting come back. And it's, in that situation it's probably, hmm, I wonder what's going to happen next. Maybe I could have a mystical experience now. Something like that. And then we're again moving away, looking for something else. Or we, we finally get that you know, that lovely item of clothing that we've been wanting for so long. And there's a moment of just, oh, how lovely. And then, you know, two moments later, and now I just need that something else to go with it, you know, to complete my outfit. The mind just keeps on going. And what we see is that getting the object of our desire or avoiding that which we do not wish to have to experience, it gives us temporary gratification but by acting it out, by acting out that process, we actually strengthen the tendency. We strengthen the force of the wanting in our mind and our heart. It becomes more powerful because we're reinforcing it through believing in it and acting on it. And as we reinforce it, as we strengthen it, it becomes more powerful. It becomes more dominant in our lives. And we find ourselves driven by it, at the mercy of it. And finding, it seems, no escape, no peace in the face of a mind that can't let go, a mind that always wants this, wants that. So, seeing this, seeing the way that our mind gets so caught up in this way, we might start to think, 
I've got to really get rid of that tendency. I've got to no longer allow it to arise in my mind. And we can, we can easily make that very movement of wanting in our mind into the problem. Make it into something which now I've got to get rid of this wanting mind. I've got to somehow push it away or stop it happening. And in that we can simply start another battle. We start thinking, I want to get to the end of wanting. I don't want to experience the not wanting mind. And we can see it's just the same thing in another form. Perhaps a little wiser and a little more spiritual, but just as capable of causing us suffering. And as I said, we're really not here to add more suffering to our lives. So, the practice is about finding a middle way. About finding a balance between being carried away by that movement of wanting, of desire, that, that makes us feel that we have to get or get rid of. When we actually believe in it, when we believe the truth, we believe that it's the truth, that we really do have to get that extra helping of lunch. Or we really do have to stop that person who's sort of shuffling on the cushion in the other side of the room from doing it, or else we won't be able to meditate. When we actually believe that, we're identified with it. And yet, to simply see that as something that arises, as the movement of the mind of wanting and not wanting. Not needing to believe it and identify with it, but nor yet needing to push it away. Just seeing it as what happens, as what arises in the mind sometimes. When we see that, we actually start to discover the possibility of what we refer to as the middle way. Finding a balance between the extremes of pushing away or grasping towards. Nisargadatta Maharaja, mystic and saint who lived in India this century, once said, Freedom from desire is not the absence of desire arising, but the absence of any need to satisfy it. The absence of any compulsion to act it out. And so when we see the movement of wanting arising, we might be doing some walking meditation, and the thought comes, hmm, I'd really like a cup of tea. And, you know, maybe I really need one because it's hot and, you know, sometimes a cup of tea helps cool me down. And we see this movement of wanting and the story it can generate. And yet, then the thought might be, oh, well, I'm not supposed to have a cup of tea during the walking meditation and, um, well, it's just wanting anyway and I'm not supposed to have to sort of act out wanting. I've been told that's not a good idea on retreats. And we might start to think, oh, no, I've got this problem with wanting. But just to see that it comes up and we can say, okay, that's wanting. We don't have to do anything with it. If we let it go, if we just recognize it and let it be, we'll see that it goes by itself. We don't need to do anything about it. And so we can observe in our experience when the movement of wanting comes, or not wanting equally, we can see that in fact it's always arising in relationship to a certain quality of our experience that we call the the feeling quality. And this is different from the use of feeling as an emotion, as we do in English rather commonly. But feeling quality refers to whether the experience is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And all experience is one of these three. It's either pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neither of those two, in which case we could say it's simply neutral. And when the pleasant arises, we want it. The conditioned mind reacts by wanting it. And when the unpleasant arises, arises, 
the conditioned mind reacts by not wanting it. That's what the conditioned mind does. And when the experience is rather neutral, it's really not offering us anything pleasant, there's nothing we want out of it, and yet it's not threatening us in any way with something difficult, we tend to be rather disinterested, we tend to disconnect from it. And this process lies at the root of a lot of what is going on in our minds and in our lives. And yet we're not conscious of it most of the time. If we're not conscious of what the experience is that we're in contact with, and we're not conscious of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither, then we tend to just find ourselves caught up in a reaction to it. The unconscious, conditioned reaction of grasping, of aversion, of disconnection. And in that grasping, in that aversion and that disconnection, we find ourselves separate and disconnected from the truth of where we are, caught in a reaction to it, rather than connected with it. And, and we can see we can see how much of our time we spent caught in this way. And much of our practice is bringing us back to simply where we are, using the breath as a tool for deepening and strengthening that capacity to be present, because when we're present we can see what's going on. We're no longer driven in the same way by the power of that movement in the mind, that movement of wanting, that movement of not wanting. And in learning to simply be present, to simply open to what is going on right now, without the demand of our mind, without having to believe in the story of our mind that says all the things that should be different, then actually connecting with our experience wholeheartedly, which is the natural result of not being caught up in wanting, in aversion, or in disinterest. That actual quality of connection reveals to us a rather simple and yet profound richness in the present moment experience. That there's something nourishing, there's something touching about being present when we allow ourselves to enter into it wholeheartedly, seeking nothing to be different, seeking nothing to be in any particular way. Because simply, what stops us from being present, you know, we might think, gosh, it's really hard to be present. My mind just doesn't want to do it. But it's not a mystery, you know, there's nothing random going on. When we're not present, it's simply because at some level we don't really want to be present. There's some way in which our mind believes that there's more on offer in being lost, in its patterns of thinking, in its patterns of grasping and aversion somehow believing that what we want is not present or that what is present is not okay. At some level, if we're believing that, if we're thinking that, then our mind is, of course, going to be acting it out. And we experience that as not being present very much. Daydreams and fantasies are somehow so much more alluring, so much more exciting than simply the bare experience of breathing. And all the memories of what we did on the last day we remember it being sunny in England, which might have been a little while ago, that flood into us as we walk out there outside are so much more fascinating than simply feeling our feet touch the earth. At least we think, our mind thinks, it's more fascinating, it's more interesting. But ultimately it's not satisfying. Ultimately we find no satisfaction in that process. 
And so to bring ourselves back to what is here, ask us to be willing to be with what is here. To let go into this moment is to let go of our wanting it to be different, wanting our experience to be other than as it is. And you know, we can spend so much time trying to fix our experience, or even more trying to fix ourselves. And we don't actually realize that this isn't the point of our life. This isn't the point of meditation. Being present doesn't require us to fix anything. It only asks us to be willing to be with just what is here right now. And to do it because we understand that if we do not develop, if we do not discover this capacity within ourselves, we spend our life running away from life. Running away and yet with no escape. Because, you know, we might be able to control or change our circumstances. We might arrive here and, you know, we've been thinking, gosh, it's great, I finally got away from all that craziness at work or that chaos and busyness at home, whatever it is. And yet, no sooner have we arrived here and settled down that we find when our knees ache and our mind wanders, we think, oh no, what am I doing here? Why did I come here? Surely, maybe I should be back at home. Maybe I should be somewhere else. And we keep creating another place, another scenario we think we might like to get to, to escape to. And maybe we can move from one place to another sometime. Although hopefully in coming here we've really made a clear commitment to ourselves to stay here in the face of whatever arises, to see what occurs for us. Because it's really important to understand, you know, that we can at times change or escape our circumstances. But we cannot escape our minds. That's one thing we can't do. And if we really wish to be happy in this life, if we really are interested in freedom, we need to be willing to face our minds, to look deeply into them, to not be carried away by them. The Buddha once said, I know of no thing that is more conducive to suffering than an untrained mind. And I know of no thing that is more conducive to happiness and to the end of suffering than a well-trained mind. So it's our mind that we're interested in, in many ways. And the process of training our mind is not that we're training it the way we might try to train some sort of uh, train it a pet or a, um, say, a circus animal to do tricks in some way. But it's much more the training. The training of allowing our mind to rest in the truth of our experience. Allowing ourselves to actually be with what is going on. And what that means is being willing to let go of the movement that takes us away. When we see that we're wanting for something else, to just gently invite ourselves, can I let it go? Can I just let myself be here, be now? To see if I can offer that to myself as an expression of deep and genuine caring for my own well-being. And when things are difficult, sometimes when we hear letting go and things are difficult, we think, great, I could really do with letting go of this pain in my knee, or I could do with letting go of this anger or this sadness or this fear. And what we really mean by it is that when we let go, it's going to go away. Or so we hope. 
And yet letting go is not really that. In, in de- dealing with difficult experiences, we could perhaps express or understand letting go much more in the quality of letting it be. Just letting it be as it is. Not putting demand or pressure upon it. Ramdas once said, you can't be with it in order for it to go away because it knows. And so when we're being with difficult experience, we might wonder, what does that mean, that it knows? It's quite simple, really. If we're wanting it to go away, we're not really being with it. We're actually expressing a more spiritual form of aversion through thinking, if I'm just being with this, then it'll go away. We can tell when we're willing to be with it because then, actually, it's okay if it goes away and it's equally okay if it does not. And when we start to sense that that possibility is there for us in the face of difficult and challenging experiences, that we can simply be with it, that there is a quality of peace, of stillness and of well-being that is possible for us, that is accessible to us in the very midst of, in the very face of whatever is arising, then we start to understand that this is something that is worth cultivating, it is worth deepening our capacity for. And our practice offers us many, many opportunities, many, many occasions in which we can deepen in that capacity simply to be with, to simply open to our experience, to bring a really warm and gentle, kind-hearted willingness to our being, to just let things be as they are. To not imagine that our purpose or our project here is to somehow fix or change our inner life or our outer circumstances by doing and by somehow an act of will or the application of a technique. It's much more through the quality of presence, the quality of receptivity that we bring to our being here. This is actually what is transforming. There's a um, there was a Tibetan Lama once who defined letting go as this. He said it's simply accepting what comes into our lives and letting go of that which leaves our lives. We might imagine just how transforming this might be for us to accept what comes, to let go of what leaves. In meditation we have many opportunities to see experience arising, to let it come, to see experience passing, to let it go, to not grasp hold of or push away anything at all and see what might be discovered in that quality of presence which simply trusts that it can receive and embrace each moment, each experience just as it is. When we find that place of balance, we start to sense a possibility of happiness that is born of our understanding experience not through manipulating it, not through trying to fix it. And yet, in that place of balance, it doesn't mean that we become somehow passive or that we never respond to our life or to a situation, but that we're able to do so from a place of balance. When we're caught in reactivity and aversion and grasping in, in our disconnection, then we're not in a place of balance and often our reactions don't actually serve us in responding to our world. 
But when we know where we are, when we're stable, when we're not being pushed or pulled by what is going on around us or within us, then we can actually respond. Then we can actually meet our life in skillful ways. And it's useful and important to be able to distinguish those movements of our heart and our mind, which are actually, we could say, bad desires. We might wish for happiness. We might desire the freedom of all beings from suffering. And it might sound like that could be used or described in the language of wanting or of craving. And yet, I think if we check inside, we'll notice that those perhaps more wholesome or or wise or beneficial movements of, of intention or a vision of possibility have an expansive and a spacious quality to them, whereby the sense of a possibility or a vision of our life or this world is something which we find creates connection, creates relationship. Whereas when we're contracted, when it's the form of, of grasping or craving or desire in its unskillful or unhelpful way, what we find is it creates contraction in our body, in our mind, and a sense of disconnection from our life because we're somehow setting ourselves apart from our world. So we can learn to bring that quality of presence which enables us to respond wisely and with gentleness and kindness to each moment in the time and in the moment when we're present. When we're not present, what can we do? We just find our reactions (coughs) playing themselves out. And so we give so much attention, so much care to developing this capacity for presence as the primary quality which we are cultivating. And yet, right there together with it is this quality of kindness, of receptivity that allows us to receive just what is going on. And there's a a very nice story told of a great Tibetan teacher who was ending, sorry, nearing the end of his life. And he called his senior disciple to him and said, I must soon give you the highest teaching that I have to offer you. I've given you many teachings, but there is one more that is most important. And so I wish to give you this teaching before I die. Do not let me forget. And over the days that followed, the, the, the senior disciple would pester his, his, um, his master, saying, please, you must give me this teaching. You've told me so important and you've given me so many wonderful teachings I can't wait to hear what this highest teaching is but always the Lama would say no, no, not yet not yet, until one day and he was very weak and frail and again the disciple came to him and said you must give me this teaching he said okay, now is the time, come with me so they walked to a high point on the mountain and sat down And the master, the Lama, said to his senior disciple, he said, when I die, you will become the master of this monastery. You will be the abbot. And when you are the abbot, many people will come to you with their problems and their difficulties. And the highest teaching I have for you is to listen to them. And in listening to their difficulties, be kind to them. This is the highest teaching. We might... If perhaps the, as the senior disciple was, find ourselves a little surprised to hear such a story or such a teaching. That perhaps the highest teaching is to be kind to the people who come to us. There's a way in which 
an understanding of our life expresses itself as a kindness to all that lives. But equally in our practice, we can understand this teaching as meaning, it's not just that we meet people, if we're the abbot of the monastery, but in our practice, as we sit here and as we pay attention, we meet moments of experience. We meet different parts of ourselves. And to actually listen to them. That's not meaning to get caught up in the stories, but to actually be present when they're there. And to have a sense of kindness, of gentleness, in receiving all the difficult things that might arise, equally as those things that might be pleasant or enjoyable, and equally as those things which might be kind of neutral or potentially boring. Just to receive them with a real quality of kindness. This is profoundly transforming for us. Letting go of wanting things to be other than as they are allows us to come into a quality of relationship with our life which is more profoundly nourishing and more richly satisfying than anything that is to be found through gaining or avoiding, accumulating or manipulating our experience through getting it the way we think we want it. When we're no longer caught up in that pressure, in that illusion of the, the hope. And it's, a, it's no hope at all, really. But when we're no longer caught up in that hope of getting something else, somewhere else, we actually come into touch with, a, with an inner wisdom, with an inner understanding that is, in fact, profoundly transforming for us. The wisdom of simple presence of deep connection and a genuine relationship to our life in this moment. Because it is in this moment, this is the only time, the only place that we will ever have a genuine relationship to our life. And in connecting with this moment, we have no need of any other relationship to any other thing outside of just now and what is just here in this moment. 